This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate. We have Dan Roth. He is the Managing Director of IBG. This is his second appearance on the podcast. We're honored to have you on the show, Dan. Well, thanks for having me again, Bob. I'm looking forward to the time with you. Oh, we're going to have some fun. So Dan and I have talked and had lunch and visited around and whatnot. But Dan, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. So in a thumbnail sketch, what does your business do and what does your ideal client look like? So I work for IBG Business Services, which is based in Denver, Colorado. We've been in business since the mid-1980s. I joined the firm several years ago. We focus on primarily mergers and acquisitions of mid to small size companies. Most of the companies we work with are looking to sell either all or part of their companies. Occasionally, we'll work with companies that are looking to make acquisitions where they have specific types of companies they want to acquire, and we help them get uh, through that process. For the clients that are looking to sell, sometimes they have us work with them right away when they want to sell a company, and we go right away to getting that started. Other times, we work with companies that not quite ready to sell, but are looking for advice on what should I do now to perform my business for sale in a year or two years or five years. So we do a lot of advising as well for helping companies know what should I do now so that when I sell my company, I get the most value for it and I find the best buyer. For you and and what folks may not know is you also started and ran a number of businesses as well. Yeah. Earlier in my career, I had the entrepreneurial bug. I started a company when I was actually in high school in technology and software, was fortunate to hire a number of people and build that up and sell it. Uh, And then a few years later, I started another software company, actually building software for international banks with a partner in London. And we were, again, fortunate to sell that company to a buyer out of Brussels, Belgium. And then I worked with a partner. We created an investment banking firm in Newport Beach, California that still runs today. I'm not part of it anymore, but uh, the company, as I understand, is doing well. Then from there, I helped start up a company in home healthcare that is now one of the largest private companies in home healthcare space in the United States. So yeah, I've been involved in a number of early stage startup companies in technology and healthcare. I love the process. I love to be part of startups, love building companies. And I love to work with business owners because I think business owners are a different breed. They're people that take risks, that I want to build something themselves, and I just find uh, a real affinity for for, uh, working with folks like that. I think about the experience that you've had in the past. So you're a business owner that's now coming in to advise business owners. What type of advantage or or benefit do you think you bring to that business owner that's calling for looking for help? Well, I hope experience. Uh, I hope the fact that I have run a company and had to make payroll and had to manage my profit and loss statement, had to figure out how to get new customers, how to deal with unhappy customers, how to hire people, how to let people go, how to grow companies, how to deal with tough times and recessions. I've been in the seat where you're running the company and everybody's looking to you to figure it out. And I hope that gives me some ability to relate to other business owners that are going through the same thing and maybe want to be across the table from somebody that's been there and done that. You know, I think that would make you somewhat unusual. I don't think there's a lot of guys that have run businesses successfully. For the guy that's listening, and he goes, well, am I the ideal type of client? What makes me ideal for you? So what's your prototypical client look like? Well, I have different types of clients. Uh, the most obvious are companies that are 
ready to sell, would like to get a transaction done in the next year. So I come in and help them get that done. But many clients that I work with really aren't clients yet. There are people that I have met that have been referred to me who are looking for some advice, some counsel, some coaching on how do I position my company so it's more valuable down the road. And so I have all different kinds of businesses that I'm talking to on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. Uh, some are clients, some are in the process of selling, some are clients where we're looking to buy companies, uh, but others we're simply talking periodically around goals and figuring out what are the next steps to get that company positioned for sale so that that owner can maximize the potential down the road. So those clients are all different kinds of companies from manufacturing to distribution, quite a bit of software and healthcare because that's a pretty good part of my background but also education and uh, pretty much the gamut of different kinds of companies that I find that I end up helping in one way or the other. I think about uh, for some of the business owners out there, they're going like, well, if I talk to Dan, what type of information should I have at hand to have a meaningful conversation? Most of the initial conversations that I have, we don't share a lot of confidential information. I'm I mean, I'm happy to provide a confidentiality agreement if we're going to have those levels of discussions. But typically, the initial conversations are pretty high level where we decide whether they want to ask for my help and whether I can be helpful to them. Uh, so those typically focus on when would you like to be selling? What does your business do? How'd you start your company? What are the challenges that you face? The basic kind of questions I used to ask when I was a consultant at Arthur Anderson. They don't change. It's not complicated. And typically that first discussion is just, do we have a rapport or a reason to keep talking to help each other out? And then we go from there. And if, if that's the case, then we might share some more specific information, but that's well down the road typically. So you have the business owner and they go, you know, I think there's value that you can bring to the table. I'm interested in talking further with you. And I'm assuming there's a fairly typical series of questions you might ask that business owner. What's the top two, three, four questions you typically try to ask a business owner getting ready to go down this road? They're pretty much always the same. The first one is generally, how'd you get in the business? Mm -hmm. What made you start it? Or did you inherit the business from your dad or your mom? Or did you take over the company you know, from a former boss? But how'd you get into it? Why'd you get into it? What made you uh, want to be a business owner in the first place? Mm -hmm. The second question is usually something like, so what do you do? What's your company do? How do you make money? Um, why do customers buy from you? And what gives you an advantage over your competition? And what are the things that concern you about your business? Third general question is, where do you want to go with it? Are you loving it? Do you want to just keep running it for the next 10 or 20 years? Do you envision selling it at some point? Sometimes I talk to business owners and at the end of the conversation, we go, yeah, we shouldn't be selling this business. We should be buying other companies. Let's put a strategy together to go do that and I'll help you figure out who to buy and how to buy them and how to buy them right. And then I think the fourth question is really simple, which is, can I help you? And is this going to be worth your time? And, and so I'm that business owner. We've had the first series of discussions and go, so, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and go down the path of trying to find a buyer. Is there a typical time frame that they should expect? So... If I get a call from a business owner and they say, I would like some advice, but I really don't want to have somebody like you represent me, which I get a lot of those calls because they don't want to pay the fees that are mm -hmm. charged. 
And my typical response is, well, then why are you calling me? People like free advice and that's fine and I'm happy to give my share. But generally then they'll say, well, I think I can find me on buyer. I already have buyers calling me and I just say, good luck. We use a line in our business. I didn't come up with it, but don't do your own brain surgery. Um, I, I, for the life of me, do not understand why business owners build something for years and years. And it's the most valuable thing they own. And it's going to be the most valuable business or thing or entity they ever sell in their entire lives. And yet, even though they never sold a business before, they think they can do it themselves. And I just said, good luck, because you're going to leave so much money on the table if you even get a deal done. And you're not going to understand how to get a deal done right. And the buyer is going to take advantage of the fact that you really don't know what you're doing. There's a statistic that I'm aware of that says about three quarters of the businesses that come to market don't sell. You know, and I think about that business owner, let's say, well, you know, I don't know that the fee is going to be worthwhile. And I don't think from my experience that business owners really have a, an understanding of the full range of exit options that they have. Right. Whether it's a strategic sale or it's a competitor that they sell to or a carve out or, or ESA, any of the other things that, sure. that go on. Right. So for you, when you go through in the business, you kind of understand where their, their revenues are and earnings and all that business, the nuts and bolts, then what do you do to start trying to collect potential buyers to take a look at the company? Well, there's two scenarios there. One is if I or our firm have been retained by the clients, so we have an agreement to market them, uh, then we'll do a lot of research using databases that we have on who are the buyers that are out in the marketplace for their kind of company. We invest quite a bit in those types of databases, whether it's strategic buyers or private equity firms or family offices. So we'll use databases typically to do that, as well as our own knowledge in the marketplace. The second scenario is if I'm mentoring a company that I may not be in going to sell for two, three, four, five years, then because I have a dialogue going with that business owner, as I see potential buyers come across my desk in one shape or another, I will keep track of that. So as an example, I'm just about to market a company that I started talking to in 2014, so almost five years ago. At that time, the company really wasn't ready to sell, but the husband and wife that owned it, I've been talking to them over the last four or five years about what to do and how to get the business where we can sell it. Five years ago to now, they've gone from about 16 million in revenue to well over 40 million in revenue, extremely profitable company. But along the way, as I've had the dialogue with this family, I've been keeping track of the buyers that are buying companies like theirs. So when we go to market in the next couple of months, I've already got a preset list of about 30 to 40 buyers. I know we're going to take a look at that deal. When you look at that revenue change over the period of time that you've been advising the company, do you find that unusual? Yes. I know every company thinks they're going to go from 16 million to 40 million in five mm -hmm. years, but very rarely do I actually see that happen. For these folks, if you were without disclosing who they are or what they do, what do you think were the top one or two things that you helped them with? that change their value metric? Well, I think the number one piece of advice that I gave them years ago that they really stuck to was focus on profit. So at the time they were more focused on just generating revenue. And I told them, 
when we get to the point where we're going to sell this company, the most important factor is going to be how profitable you are. So start now with cost reduction programs to generate a higher profit. Uh, start going after higher profit contracts, shed lower profit contracts, so that when we go to the market to sell your business, we're showing the highest profit margin that we possibly can. And then the second thing that they did, which really worked well, and they were fortunate, is they focused on getting long-term contracts, two, three, four-year contracts that have really helped their company and allowed them to do exceptionally well in a competitive environment. So you have this company out here that's got, they've moved their revenue numbers and they've started establishing longer-term contracts. From the buyer, the prospective buyers, when they come talk to you, how big a difference is the longer-term contract versus the short-term contract in their eyes? Well, if you're in a business where contracts are important, the length of the contracts and how solid those contracts are is extremely important to the buyer because that's almost like guaranteed revenue. So when I'm selling companies that are oriented around contracts, government contracts, large company contracts, what have you, uh, the more solid those are and the longer those are and the larger amount those are, the stronger the buyer views that business because it's much lower risk. And lower risk almost always translates into higher value. Within that process, when you look at some of these companies that are coming to market, when you look at the structure of the company between customer concentration risk and whether the owner of the company is the main salesman, the main everything, do you have much input with those folks when you have those circumstances occur? Well, if I'm helping them years ahead of the sale, yes. If I'm helping them and we're selling the company in the next 12 months, no. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on how early I get involved to help that business owner with essentially coaching to an exit value. But those are the types of things that we would focus on ahead of time. Customer concentration, do you have a management team, long-term contracts, recurring revenue. These are basic fundamental aspects of a valuable company. As I'm thinking, you've got the one company you've worked with for a very, very long time. And then I'm assuming periodically you'll get a call says, I really need to sell my business in the next six to nine months. I've had an event. Mm-hmm. What's your typical thoughts and dialogue with that business owner that maybe had a health event or distress with a partner or something like that? Yeah, I think those are harder. Uh, you never want to be in a position where you sell a business because you have to. And unfortunately, that does happen, whether it's a health event or a divorce or a partnership issue, too often I see that situation. It's a case-by-case deal, but generally my approach is to sit down with the owner if they trust me and if we have a relationship going, do a very quick, candid assessment of the situation, uh, and then hopefully bring my experience to how do we position this company to buyers in a way where we don't take too big of a hit because we're selling it under a duress situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it takes some planning, but you got to move quick. Probably the number one thing in those situations is you have to be realistic about what's really going on. And too often people are not. They, they still aren't real about what's happening when they have to sell. And the, the more time that you waste, the worse it gets typically. You know, I think about the guy down the street from me sold his business for this, so I should be able to sell my business for that. Yeah. Too, and I'm I'm sure you've heard that every day, all the time. Every day, 
I, every business owner I talk to has heard about some other deal that somebody sold for someone amazing valuation and therefore that's their value. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply not how it works. And Unless you're a company that Google's going to buy because Google has crazy money and you're in the software industry with hockey stick projections and social media type companies or whatever right now that's super hot. There are very, very, very few companies that get those types of valuations. And unfortunately, too many owners delude themselves into thinking, well, because that guy got it or that woman got it, therefore I'm going to get that value and that's what I deserve. And it's simply not the case. The market doesn't work that way. Well, putting my head on backwards. So you have the guy that comes in and falls or the lady that comes in with their company and they fall in love with their company again. And they go, you know what? I don't think I want to sell my company. And you look at them and say, maybe you should be acquiring. Mm -hmm. How does that discussion go? Well, typically the acquisition discussion takes place when I'm working with a a business owner that has big plans, that has capital available, that wants to grow fast, that has quite an engine behind their company. They're not looking to exit. They're looking to build. They love the process of owning and building. And so the acquisition side of the discussion is generally more oriented towards somebody who wants to grow and grow faster and is willing to take the risk of buying companies and has access to the capital to get deals done. That's probably less than 10% of the business owners that I talked to. You know, in, in looking at all the, I think they're called tombstones, on the wall right. here, how many businesses do you think IBG has represented in sale over the past number of years? Well, I'm not the owner of this company. Mm-hmm. I just work here. But I think our marketing literature says somewhere between 11 and 1,200 companies. You know, so they, it's quite a few. reason I bring that up is you've got that business owner that wants to take, and it's like, I want to sell my own company. And you go, it may be the first time they've ever sold a company. Mm-hmm. Typically, 80% plus of the net worth yeah. is tied up in their company. Right. And what's that dialogue that you have with that company owner saying, you know, we've done hundreds and hundreds of deals and we can bring more offers to them. What's the dialogue with that guy to say, I really don't think you should take and do self-surgery? I actually don't approach it that way okay. because I don't really want to sell a business owner on using my services. Mm-hmm. If I have to sell you on using me, I'm probably not the right fit. Okay. What I tell people who want to do it on their own is I just point out, here's the risks that you're taking and here's where you could get yourself in trouble. So I'll answer it that way by saying that probably the biggest risk of doing a deal yourself is not accessing the right buyers for your company. So often the way this happens is a business owner knows of somebody that's been calling them that wants to buy their company. It's probably a competitor or somebody that knows about their business. And they go, oh yeah, anytime I want, I can do a deal with XYZ. Um, And that's great. You're just not going to get top value for your business. You may sell it, but you have almost no chance of getting the highest value or the best terms for your company. And the second biggest issue is you really don't know how to negotiate the sale of a company. It's not like selling a house. Selling a house is pretty easy. You come up with a price, the buyer goes and gets a mortgage, you close on a certain day, everybody signs the papers and you're done. Selling a business, I don't care if it's $2 million in sales or $300 million in sales, is very complicated. A typical purchase contract that I deal with on a business sale is anywhere from 60 to 100 pages of legal contractual language 
much of which I don't even understand. And that's why every deal that I work on, I always make sure we have a top-notch merger and acquisition attorney as part of the process. In thinking about a couple of things that I want, one, of all the customers that you've worked with over time, can you characterize how many of them get an all-cash offer versus not an all-cash offer? Well, maybe this means I'm not very good at what I do, but very rarely do I sell companies for all cash. No, I just think that's reality. Probably in the last five years, I might have sold two or three for all cash. Mm -hmm. The rest of them were cash plus an earn out or cash plus different structures. Part of that is that's how we get to a higher value because different components to the structure get us to a higher value, but that means you're shifting some risk back and forth between that, That's and a risk management deal from the seller and the It's acquirer. all about risk management. When you deal with the business, what type of team do you think is appropriate for that business owner to have on board? Whether I start working with a client and we're selling in the next year, or I'm working with a business owner who's not even a client yet, but I'm coaching them perhaps for two or three or four or five years before we do anything. I always tell them to assemble a team around them of independent advisors. And independent is very important. Most business owners have advisors that are their friends. And friends generally don't tell you what you really need to hear. Candor is not part of how they operate. Uh, that's a not a good advisor. So the advisors that I think you're going to need when you sell your company, you're absolutely going to need a really good merger and acquisition attorney. And there are not a lot of good ones around. You're going to need some good accounting help. All, you know, all businesses have some in-house accounting, but probably you're going to want to need have some outside accounting help. I think you should have a wealth advisor, somebody who can look at your asset base, who can look at your company, who can look at your lifestyle, who can coach you on the side of, well, here's where you need to get to so that when you sell your company, you can maintain your lifestyle or increase your lifestyle. Most business owners that sell, unfortunately, take a diminishment in their lifestyle over time because they didn't plan properly. And then the last person that can be important is an insurance person who's skilled in the areas of how to set up different types of insurance pre and post sale to protect your assets, protect your liabilities. And, but also, if you want to, some of my clients are fortunate enough to do so well on their sale that they want to do some charitable work, charitable remainder trusts or whatever vehicles you want to use. So in that case, the wealth management person and the insurance person can work together to set up those vehicles. Uh, and I think that's probably the core team that you need. Do you find often that when you talk to the business owner and the sales about to occur, that they've really thought about the Monday after the sale? Somehow, some business owners, I think, have been planning for it for a long time. Others, no. And others will tell me, I know I need to sell my company. I'm at an age where I need to sell. But quite honestly, I'm just not sure what I'm going to do with myself. So those are some interesting conversations that we have. If I know them well enough and we have a good enough relationship, I'll give them some suggestions. Some take them, some don't. Um, yeah, the but, statistic's pretty high on the, the folks that sell their business. 12 months after the sale, many of them go through and go, I would have either done that differently or I wouldn't have done it all because no. they're at a loss of what to do. Because you only hunt, fish, or golf so much. Uh, absolutely. I think every business owner who sells a company they've built for years and years has some regret after a deal's done. And it could be, now what do I do? Because my whole life was defined by my business. The regret is often I didn't get what I should have for my company because I didn't sell to the right buyer. That's mm -hmm. probably the number one regret that I hear. 
And, and so I think you have to have a plan for what am I going to throw myself into? You know, entrepreneurs generally are people who have type A personalities. They're driven, they're busy, they do things all the time. And when all of a sudden you don't have this company to run anymore, you need something to fill that void or, or some things uh, to fill that vacuum for sure. There's a whole industry that serves that side of the house. And that's a bit of a recent revelation for me where they'll go through and they deal with the family members or they deal with the psychology of the transition. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Dan, I, I tell you, we're going to shift gears here just a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the things that have been influential for you. And recently, reading material, what book has influenced you recently or that you're working through? I love the book by Adam Grant, Give and Take. It's a very interesting book where he's a Wharton professor who profiles three different types of people. There's a giver who's more of a selfless type of a person. There's a, a matcher who's essentially like, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And then there's what he calls the takers, which some people crossly would define as the selfish type of a person. But he studies it within a corporate environment and how that operates in business and how you often have takers who are louder and pushier and tend to get a lot of attention. Squeaky but, wheel. Yeah, exactly. But his research suggests very strongly that givers who are more quiet and selfless uh, and not boastful and always trying to make themselves the center of attention, at the end of the day, are far more successful produce far greater results. And those are certainly the types of people that I admire, people that get the job are done. very quiet and just get the job done. I'm just not a big fan of people that do a lot of boasting and talk about how great they are and are always trying to embellish themselves. It's just not a characteristic that I admire. And it's probably your attraction to the business owners because most of the business owners that I know they just work hard. You got it. And that's, yeah. I admire the heck of that. Oh, yeah. They have courage. There's no doubt. And if I run into a business owner that's boastful and wants to tell me how great he or she is, then we don't click. And those aren't the clients that I end up working with. And <laughs> they don't like me. And I clearly don't like them. <laughs> These are not the dro droids you're looking for. We, we don't fit. <laughs> looking back over your career, we get bumps in the roads or what we would, might characterize as failures. Is there a failure that, or a bump in the road that you look back on that has set you up for your current success? Well, I've had many failures over my career. I'm one who believes if you're not having failures, you're not trying. The one that comes to mind is the one that I beat myself up about most often, my biggest failure. I, I had acquired some companies quite a few years ago for my own account, and one of my most successful companies that I owned burned down on a fire completely destroyed. And I ended up in years of legal battles with more lawyers than I cared to count. And it took a huge toll on my life for that four or five year period when that was going on. That's definitely the worst four or five years of my life. And so my failure there was that I didn't properly anticipate a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I did not... I guess what I did is I failed to handle it as well as I should have, which impacted the people around me in a bad way. And I'm, I know I regret that immensely. So for you, when you talk about risk and insurance previously, assuming risk and insurance would have been helpful in that situation. Well, and, you know, without getting to all the details, I did have insurance. Unfortunately, the agent that I used 
unbeknownst to me, did not set me up with the insurance that I needed in the case of this particular fire. And at the end of the day, it was my responsibility to know, but I just didn't. Yeah. And yeah. boy, you talk about a failure and a regret, that's it. Tuition is expensive. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> my most expensive lesson for sure. You know, if you could put an ad on page one of the local business paper sharing your message, what would it say and why? Gosh, that's a great question. You know, let's say the audience is business owners. What advice on page one would you offer them? I guess the advice that I would offer that I seem to be offering more as I get older is make a difference. I'm trying to make a difference and do better by people around me and my clients and people that I know. Um, I think we live in this very toxic world. And I think business owners, simply because of their makeup, are in a unique position to make a difference beyond just profit and loss. And I guess... That's kind of the thing that's important to me right now is in my little world, how can I make a difference? And in your world as a business owner, how can you make a difference beyond just profit and loss? I think the thing that gets lost sometimes in the media, they say, well, it's the business owner. Well, the business owner also employs a lot of people with families. Absolutely. And they're responsible for lots of mouths to feed at night and, and so on. And you think about if the business owner does well, by and large, the employees and their families do well. I could tell you, I'm selling a company right now, 64-year-old owner. He's run his company for 43 years, and we talk all the time. We're, I think it's going to sell between probably in the next two to three months. And he talks to me almost every time we chat because we've become good friends about how he has 46, 47 different people who work for him. And the biggest responsibility he feels is to make sure they have paychecks every week to take care of their families. Mm-hmm. And that is the single most important thing to that business owner. Well, and they're the ones they I, brought him to the dance. I admire him so much because that's his core belief. Mm-hmm. And those 46 or 47 people are what allowed him to be a successful business owner and have a business that we're going to be able to sell for quite a good value here in the next couple of months. For you looking back, at the allocation of either your time or initiative. What's helped you the most recently and why? From a personal perspective, what helps me is exercise. I try to exercise a fair bit as I get older. It's more and more important. And I do notice I exercise in the mornings. I notice when I exercise in the morning, I actually am more productive all day. And the days that I don't exercise, I'm less productive. So I would say number one for me is without a doubt exercise. But second is time away from work. I'm a big believer that I work hard, but I don't work on weekends and I don't work at night. I work really hard during the day, but and I manage my schedule and I manage my clients and I manage what I'm doing so that my workday ends. And I believe those two things allow me to be even more productive when I am working. But in my own personal life, much happier because I'm not defining my life by work. Good advice. What's your most unusual habit or what others might consider out of the ordinary that's helped you the most? I think what people would say is unusual about me is that I don't chase clients. Most people think in this business, when you have somebody that's interested in working with you, you call them and you email them, you pester them, and you constantly badger them to make sure that they hire you at some point. And I don't do that at all because I believe business owners are grown-ups who can make their own decisions and 
if they want to work with me, they'll decide to do so. And if they have questions for me, they'll reach out to me. But I just don't believe in pestering people as a general rule. I don't want to be pestered. So why would I pester somebody else? And yet I, I'm pretty busy. So it seems to work for me. But that style goes against the grain of what most people do, which is this constant pestering and badgering of people, which I just find uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't like it myself. And so I wouldn't offer it to somebody else. Yeah. So I don't know if that's an unusual habit, mm-hmm. but I know people think I'm weird because I do it that way. Uh, well, that, that's two different things. about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. People think I'm weird for a lot of reasons. <laughs> well, you know. So. And with all the business owners and CEOs that you've worked with through the years, what advice would you offer to a new CEO that's assuming that role for the first time? So if you're a CEO and you're taking over a company that's up and running, I would say, because I did this one back in my career years ago, I became the, actually the president of a company that was about a thousand employees. And I was brought in by the owner because the company was struggling. And I sought advice from a number of people before I started on what to do. And this is the advice that I got, which I use, which worked well for me. And the first thing was that I spent the first 30 days just listening to people. I didn't come in with my agenda. I didn't come in and act like I was some big fancy CEO or president here to take over the company. I just went out and I listened to everybody that I could meet in the company. I spent time with people individually or in groups. I listened a lot. And then I came back and I said, here's what I heard and here's what I think we should do about it. And I asked for their buy-in. So one thing is don't come day one with a plan. Take some time to get the people that work with you and for you to get involved in what you're trying to do. Uh, The second is that I would form some advisors around you who are separate from the company and I've used them as a sounding board. I think one of the most effective things private companies should do and don't do is have an outside board of directors. It's free or low cost advice. Uh, You should absolutely have that when you're taking over a company. And then the third thing is that I would set yourself a hundred day plan and I would tell the people in your company, here's the five things that I'm going to accomplish in the first hundred days. And then I would make darn sure you accomplish those five things because if you don't, you have no credibility. Smart goals. Yep. Looking back over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to? Uh, I should have said no to buying the company that burned down. (laughs) I should have said no to several clients that I've tried to help. I have not been able to help because they don't listen and they're stubborn. And so they have not had the results that I wanted. And I just don't do well with business owners who think like that. I should have said no to those types of clients. And then... These are smaller things, but I should have said no to certain projects that I've gotten involved in that just were not a good use of my time. <laughs> For the folks listening, says, man, I need to talk to Dan. I've got some questions. How do they find you on social media? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Dan Roth, IBG Business is the company that I work for. They can call me. My business line is 303-785-0531. They can email me at D Roth, that's D-R-O-T-H at IBGbusiness.com. I'm always happy to talk to folks that are business owners. One thing that I haven't made clear is a lot of the coaching that I do and helping a business owners, I don't charge people for that. I view that as a long-term investment and in helping you sell your company someday down the road. So 
don't feel like if you reach out to me, I'm going to try to stick you for some big large bill or some big consulting fee. It's just not what I do. I often say this, the biggest mistake that the listener can make is not calling. So if they have a question, call. The best part about what I do, Bob, is I work with business owners every day. And uh, they're a unique club of people. The membership is very hard to get into. And I've been so privileged throughout my life to either be a business owner or work with business owners all the time. And I I couldn't be more pleased that that's what I get to do. Well, I I get to do it in the podcast and talk to business owners all the time. So you meet some amazing people. It's just an awesome bit of tutoring as well. I bet. You know, is there a quote or what quote influences you or you use regularly? Well, I can't recite the whole quote, but it's on my LinkedIn page because I think of it so much. And that's uh, the man in the arena quote, which is essentially my definition of an entrepreneur, which was President Roosevelt who came up with a quote. And essentially it says, don't take shots at people unless you're willing to try it yourself first and get in the arena and fight the fight. And those are the kinds of people that I think are business owners and people who aren't business owners can't relate and they'll never understand it. There's a big difference between somebody who provides a job and somebody who wants a job. And the man in the arena, I think is a fabulous quote that um, really hits home with that. And I was originally exposed to it by a woman who has two of the most watched Ted talks ever called Brene Brown. Um, She's fabulous. Uh, And she talks about man in the arena. That's how we went and looked it up. And her whole area of expertise is on the idea of being vulnerable, which I think is an interesting concept for business owners. And essentially, the more vulnerable you are, the better off you're going to be. But it's hard to take that step. That's almost like the antithesis to I know everything, I'm in charge, military style. And I'm pretty sure in my younger days, I didn't have any vulnerability and I didn't have any humility, but I and hope no today I'm getting it. <laughs> and uh, the more that I can share that with others, I hope the more successful I will be and hopefully they will be. If I was to poll the business owners that you've represented that have sold their business and said, what is the thing that Dan is best at? What do you think they would say? Well, I hope to say more than one thing. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the word that I hear most often from people in that regard is the word candor. Most of my clients would say one of the best qualities about Dan is that he just always speaks with candor. He doesn't tell me what I need, what I want to hear. He tells me what I need to hear. And that's pretty much what I think people would say about me. Well, that's just honesty. Well, I don't know any other way, but... There's so many people in this world and in the business that I'm in that just make stuff up and say stuff. And I just shake my head and go, I'm, I'm amazed that works. Mm-hmm. But the, the amount of blank that goes on is staggering to me. It's a sad thing that just being straight with people is, seems to be going away. Well, it's, it's a whole lot simpler to keep up with. You know, you don't have to remember what you said. So, well, I probably say this. And they go, uh, well, yeah, that's what you said. And you go, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah it's... Just tell people the honest truth. Well, well, Dan, I, you know, we're coming to a close on the episode here, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your day to visit with us on the podcast. And I would tell the owners, I said, man, if you're not talking to this guy and you've got it in mind, you should reach out to him and say hello. Wow, that's awfully nice, Bob. Thanks for inviting me, and I really enjoy spending time with you again today. All right. Thank you, sir.